What's going to spark their interest besides going off on another career? Or what, what, how do they think about it? You've got to make them excited about it, I guess. And, you know, excitement is oh, all this other stuff that you can do. You might eventually get there 10 or 12 years down the track. You've got to do all the hard yards first. Jobs and skills are always huge topics when it comes to hospitality, but possibly never more so than now. Uh, there's an ongoing staffing crisis. Uh, jobs and skills are at the forefront of the national political conversation and it seems like a great time to talk to somebody who employs around 80 kitchen staff across 12 hotels. Uh, our guest today is Chris Watton, he's the group executive chef of GM Hotels and he's all about jobs and skills. Welcome Chris to the podcast. Great, thank you for having me Danny. Uh, tell us a little bit about GM Hotels and your role there. So GM Hotels, we've got a group of um, 12 hotels um, across all across Adelaide, north, south and um, east and west. Uh, we employ approximately about 400 staff across the whole group and in that is about 80 kitchen staff. Uh, so my role is to oversee the kitchens, um, collaborating with the head chefs, sous chefs and um, you know, and then helping them employ skill sets and um, procurement as well. So. And, and developing menus and, and things that go along, along along the way. It sounds like that would keep you very busy. I mean, <laughs> um, at any and even in so-called normal times, how have you found? Uh, I mean, what have been some of the biggest challenges and scenarios um, with the labour crisis that we're in? Um, so yeah, so I'm always chasing my tail every week. For lucky enough, where in one way we're lucky enough for a big enough group where I can move. Um, chefs from venue to venue um, to backfill um, but then once you've backfilled somewhere you've got to backfill the one that you've taken it out of sometimes so yeah it, it is just an ongoing um, harder and harder each week um, with people you know probably leaving the industry as well which has made it even harder you know post-COVID um, I think a lot of them got you know top of they always thought about it um, especially when they got there in you know probably their mid, mid to late 40s maybe early 50s um, and that's sort of left a, even a bigger hole to backfill um, there. But yeah, I find it we, we find it quite hard, um, even in our group, to to, to resource um, to resource each kitchen. Now I'm lucky enough we haven't had to shut any kitchens or or close any days. We're still able still able to trade um, at 100. Um, percent So that's been one bonus out of all this. Yeah, interesting. I mean, what kinds of, I don't know whether it's menu simplifications or um, pr simplifying processes, like what kinds of, I guess, contingencies have you have to put in place uh, just because of this constant shuffle and juggle? Yeah, so one big shift that we top and made coming out of COVID was the menus, as much as they're simplified, simplified we then went to basically printing in-house so they can change them in between services if they run out of something or if um or they can expand them or contract them as they see fit you know some days on a sunday sunday lunch you, you run out of something you can quickly go reprint for dinner um, rather than scribbling all over your menus you know to say well, we're out of this we're out of this um so that that's one thing that we've topped um, really implemented coming out of post-COVID too, and, and also looking at the skill set as well um, and, and steps on plates and, and also the supply chain too. You know, it's not we might run out of stuff. You simply can't get it. So we've had to quickly adapt our menus um, to suit um, the current climate, which, is, which has been quite beneficial um, in thinking on their feet as well. 
Yeah, it's really, really interesting that to have to be so nimble. I'm, I'm interested as well in, you know, these steps on the plate and how you've um, simplified things for staff in the kitchen that might be that little bit greener or a little bit undermanned. What kinds yep. of changes have you made to dishes and processes there? Um, well, looking only at, you know, trying to minimise two or three-step process, you know, whether it's the protein, the carbohydrate and the sauce, um, and then we type of went through a bit of a, you know, shared type of salad down the middle because um, we operated a lot of, you know, hotels and, and pubs. Um, so uh, in, instead of having to put the salad on every plate, then people don't eat it. Um, we've type of then taken those steps to, to look at simplifying it and also, you know, the space you have in each kitchen. Obviously, you've got some large ones, some small ones. So it's adapting what and getting some of the guys to rethink on, on what they do. You know, they'll only do what they they've always done unless you challenge them to, to look at it differently um, and to bring, yeah, and basically, yeah, to make their life a little bit simpler in these tougher times. I mean, it sounds like you're finding positives in amongst all this, you know, stress. Like, yeah, what are some of the benefits that you're seeing? Um, well, we do weekly stock takes. So minimising your skews, you don't have to count as much stock, you know, and, you know, so that that's one bonus. Um and getting them to think on their feet and think a little bit more broadly as well. Um, you know, you've got some people, you know, who have, who have come in, you've got some great head chefs, um, or, you know, great teams, you know, but some really good head chefs. And then you've got some, you know, slightly unskilled um, cooks and chefs below them, which are, are, are still great workers, but just haven't had the experience. So it's, it's not making it too difficult and out of their comfort zone for them. And so you can try and get that little bit of consistency, um, but by simplifying and still giving a good product. Mm. I mean, it's so interesting that balance between um, restriction and creativity. I mean, I know as, as a writer, like sometimes when you've got a really restricted word count or you've got to th fit things to a certain format, you can actually find it forces you to be more creative in a way, that's, doesn't it? That, that's right. That's right. You know, so, you know, it's, it's only when you be challenged with these type of things that you start to think differently. Otherwise, if, if you've got everything in the world to work with, um, you know, you you'll make it too complicated, you know. So we try and keep it as simplified and also speed too, you know. You, you know, when we were in restrictions as well and you only got 25% capacity or 50% capacity, you had to make sure you turn those tables over to try and, you know, reach some type of normality of revenue, you know. So speed output was, was always in mind as well. Yeah, and I actually love that salad in the middle of the table concept because you're right, like a lot, especially I think in, in pubs where people just think they need to put, you know, something that looks a little bit fresh or green on a plate, but then that's not what people necessarily are there for. But then, the, that, yeah, there might be one person on the table that would love to scoop up every, everybody's that, salad. That, that's right, and that's what we've found too, you know. So we, we tried to simplify some protein and carbohydrates and sauce on the plate and then give them a side salad to share and we, you know, we, you know, contract that and expand that to the sides of the table. So if it's obviously a table two, they get a smaller one to share. If it's a table of eight or, or ten, you know, you give them a couple down the middle. You know, they can always we can always give them more, um, but generally you find that they don't eat they don't eat it all anyway. So it just goes to waste. Um, you know, and a lot of time when you you know you're serving salad with a steak or a snitty or whatever it may be, it's more of a garnish. Any anything, you know, you find even a lot of people just push it aside and just want to eat their their snitty and chips and gravy. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> they certainly do. How have you found the response from customers with these changes? You know, have you had complaints with the, you know shorter menus or the you know changing some of these dishes, or have you found people pretty amenable? No, I think if, I think people have been pretty adaptive to it. You know, they knew all the challenges that that were around. Even them at home having to get you know 
supplies from the supermarket or whatever it may be. So no, there wasn't there wasn't really any pushback at all. Um, you know, there was a time there where I was on the tools for a while for eighteen months because we didn't, you know, was pretty short staffed, and I jumped in and helped. You know, and we were changing the menu twice a day um, from lunch to dinner. Um, and it also gave people, you know, obviously you had your stables there, um, but the other ones you could actually change to, A, it gave creativity and, and inspiration to the kitchen guys. They weren't doing the same dish for the next three to four months and getting bogged down in it, but also then gave your regulars something else to look for um, or look at, you know. So there's times when we couldn't get, you know, a certain ingredient, whether it be, you know, cockles or mussels or whatever it may be, you could actually just take that out of the menu, go back, rewrite it, and then, or if you got something that came in that was really good and fresh and on special, you could actually put it straight on. Yeah, it's really interesting because I guess a lot of pub menus you do feel like they're pretty bolted on, but you know you've, you've really introduced this level of flexibility, which I guess works at both ends. Yeah, yeah. So you know you've always got your stinnies, you've always got your fish and chips and your squid and your burgers and and your staples like that. But there's probably about you know probably five to six, maybe seven items that you could just flip around, and it might be just changing the condiment that goes with it. Um, or I could buy just a certain amount and, and we just say until we're sold out, you know, we didn't want to hang on to that or, you know, have that wastage. So we'd just say, all right, we're sold out. I'm sorry if, you know, um, we'll get some more in tomorrow and hopefully you can come back tomorrow if you if you want. So, you know, so it made people um, a bit more excitement, you know, that, that just didn't get stagnant, you know. And, I, and I, it was a bit of a challenge at the start um, for the kitchen guys to get their head around it um, because they weren't used to that that change so quickly. Um, so, but once they got into the system of it, it, it was just became second nature. You know, they could actually go into the cool room or the dry store and actually cr- create a dish of what you've got on, or, or the freezer, or, or what you've got on hand to create something. You know, so it made them think outside the box a bit. Yeah, I love that. Um, so obviously, you know, with with the staff short and not as many internationals around, you've got to look at other angles to get people into the industry. Can you tell me what else you're doing? Um, so basically, we've just um, South Australian government are currently um, putting a uh, building five new technical colleges here in SA, putting um, two hundred eight million dollars into them. So there's three around the city, and there's um, one up at Port Augusta and one down at Mount Gambier. So they've they've put together this team. Um, and I've been asked to sit on the board of um, another ten people, and it's called a hospitality reference group. And what they want to try and do is actually get people, from, all people from the industry in different, um, uh, you know, job places, and then bring them together to try and educate kids that are coming through school why they should choose to come into the hospitality sector. Um, now we've only just started it basically this week, so it's probably going to you know take a while. Um, but basically, yeah, trying to reach out to these kids and say, you know, hospitality can be a career. It's just not a, a fill-in part-time job for a bit of pocket money. You can look at it as a career. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of steps we've got to do. So it's good that South Australian government are, are, are putting all this, this money into it, which will be built over the next four years. But they don't want it to be perceived as a school either. They want to try and bring it more industry-like. So it's actually real... Um, a real case scenario. So I'm not quite sure how that looks at the moment, um, but that's what they're, they're wanting to do. Um, you know, because some stats have come out that South Australia is the lowest skilled economy in Australia with 38 um, and 38% of kids who are coming out of school have no post-school qualifications. Um, it's only 62% that are actually coming out with a cert three or higher or, um, or are going to university. So the other 38% are just falling by the wayside. 
Mm, so interesting and, and so positive. Great to have that focus on the hospitality industry and also to have, you know, the industry as part of this process. I mean, w- what would you say to someone who is considering what to do when they left school? I mean, how would you sell the hospitality industry to them? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's a, a good question that we had a bit of a uh, um, you know, think tank the other day. Um, I, I think the first, well, there's two prong attacks. I think the first one is actually, you know, going to the schools, um, which we're looking at doing, and speaking to the kids who are doing hospitality at school. So currently there's 48 schools, um, public schools in SA, which offer the hospitality and cookery section. And I think it's asking the kids, what do you, how do you see our industry you know, do they just say, oh, I'm going to cooking because I'll get out of science or to actually see it as, an, as a career, um, whether it's front of house, back of house, you know, financials or whatever it may be, but within this sector. Um, but then also telling them all the positives as well. Um, you know, and I think we, by default, we think if you're going to be coming, if you're going to go into hospitality, initially you think, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to go to a cafe or a restaurant or a pub. That's where they cook. But I think there's so many other avenues in our industry now, whether it's TV, whether it's publication, whatever it may be, that there's a lot of other exciting avenues that you can actually still cook and be in this industry. So I think it's telling them that what else is out there. Um, I mean, they all know, master, they all see MasterChef and all that sort of stuff, but do they actually know there's a, you know, there's chefs and a team behind that that actually just test and create the, the recipes? You know, so I think you've got to spark their interest in it and just show them it's just not you know, going down to a local cafe, which is great, but that's not the that's not the the stop. You know, mm. um, and, and 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 yeah, how do they how do that what do they hear out and about? Do they just do they think it's just a you know a hot sweaty environment um, and you've got to work every weekend and, and work long hours? Um, I just you know I, I think we need to get their perspective on it and see how they're thinking of it as well. Yeah, I mean, but you would love them <laughs> to come into the kitchen and work oh, weekends. De- de- oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> I'm not saying that that's not an option, you know. But it's just you know I think it's it's you know it's giving them um, you know what what's going to spark their interest besides going off on another career or what what how do they think about it? You know what you got to make them excited about it, I guess. And you know excitement is oh, all this other stuff that you can do. You might eventually get there ten or twelve years down the track you got to do all the hard yards first. You know, I think, I think there's a dose of reality and there's a dose of, you know, what the possibilities are. Chris, I'm sure you'd be able to inspire them with your own story. Can, can you give us a bit of, um, yeah, the, the Chris Watton story? How did you uh, get into cooking in the first place? Yeah, I had no interest in cooking at all when I was a kid or growing up. Um, I'd never cooked at home really besides probably a barbecue when we were camping or something like that. Um, and so then I wanted to leave school in year 10. I was, I was advised not to go on to year 11 and 12 if I wasn't going to go to uni and I wasn't going to go to uni. So I then by default got into um, commercial cookery at TAFE only because our family friend was one of the teachers there and I rocked up the first day not even knowing what a chicken stock was, not knowing anything, not, never picked up a knife. You know, so I did that, got a, um, an apprenticeship at a local, uh, with a local family who had the contract to cook for um, schools um, for the Uniting Church. So I was basically doing bulk stuff at the start, heating up baked beans, making scrambled eggs, you know, and the kids would serve themselves. So service was me, was sitting down and, and eating. Um, still had no idea. I just thought it was, it was um, you know, it was cash really coming in. I didn't have to go to school. <coughs> um, so by then I went through, you know, um, golf clubs, got into restaurants, 
um, different various cafes and restaurants and so forth. Um, did a little bit of traveling around Australia, um, ended up in Margaret River, um, where I was working over there. We had our fa- we'd moved from Queensland over to there, moved my three kids and my wife, um, and we're all about to settle down. And then it ended up um, staying, um, landing a job with, with Maggie Beer for product development chef. So then we moved back to SA, um, way out of my depth again, um, had no idea on product development at all, didn't even know what the, the job was. Um, so I was lucky to, to nail that and then moved over to SA and then I worked for her for seven years and still do a little bit of consultancy work for her as well at, at this point. That's an amazing story, especially when you're making it sound like you didn't know what you were doing at any point, which I'm sure is very far from the truth. Was there a point at which, you know, you sort of you lit up with, with food? Like was there a mentor that, that, you know, took you under their wing or was there, I don't know, something, one of the jobs or even a dish or an ingredient that you were just like, oh, no, this, is, this isn't just baked beans, this is something special? Oh, not not particularly. I had a, I've got a really good mate who was my my head chef, um, you know, back when I was an apprentice, and still best mates with him these days. But we just had good co- camaraderie. You know, he was a good mentor. He's a good teacher. You know, back. You know, I came from the Sunshine Coast at Caloundra or Caramundi. Now there was no. Now I'm not going to say there's no really top restaurants there back in the what was that early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. You had to go to Noosa for that. Noosa was so far away. You know. Um, back in those days. Um, so there was really no inspiration. You know, there was probably a really gourmet traveler out and about as a magazine. You know, so there was nothing. I just bumbled along. It was type of a job you fell into. Someone needed a hand, you'd go help them. But, yeah, there were skill sets that you learnt, you know, along the way. Yeah, definitely with having to cater for a 1,000 people and timing and logistics and all that um, type of stuff. Um, but there was never, you know, there was never really a... a you know, a penny drop type moment where I go, you know, this is this is what this is really good. You know, this is what I want to do. I just type a yeah, moving to market was good. It, it was a great lifestyle. You know, I, I didn't have to work nights, still had to work weekends, but I worked in a, a cafe Provador over there. <coughs> um, I say type of found dishes that I like to cook and and do. Um, so I guess it was a gradual interest in food and, and cooking, you know, and it just type of stick with it. And it was something that you always knew, so you always fell back into. You know, you type of came I came and go earlier on out in the industry where you want to have a break. You know, I went and bought a lawn mowing business just to get out of the kitchen. <laughs> and, you know, and then after 18 months, you type a default, oh, the kitchen's the place. So I type a, I don't know if you just know you need to be there or you just fall back into it, you know, and you know someone and you know someone and you just keep getting work and you, you type of get, you, you stay in the industry, you know. So, um, but, the, you know, there's definitely been you know, exciting stuff I've done over the, over the years for sure. Yeah, so interesting. And tell us more about um, working with Maggie Beer. I mean, she's so famous. I mean, the burnt fig <laughs> ice cream is the one that everybody knows. Did you get your hands on much of that? <laughs> I my one of my jobs was to, to develop ice cream. Um, you know, so for seven years I was eating so much ice cream. Um, you know, so it was it was a quite a unique role. Um, we were in Margaret River. My brother-in-law found this little paper clipping. Um, Maggie Beer wants a product development chef. It was in the local paper. He sent it to me. He said, you should apply. Had no idea. So I sent off my resume um, and I sent this pop a box of um, stuff I was working on over in Margaret River because we had a provador as well, so making relishes and pickles and stuff. Mucking around really. Um, and so I sent that. So that arrived, but my email didn't go through. And so her PA rang me and said, we've got this stuff. What's it about? 
So I said, oh, it's for my application for my job. She said, oh, Maggie's down to the last two. Oh. <laughs> um, she's about to make her decision. I said, well, listen, I think this was on like a Thursday. And I said, well, listen, I'll fly, I'll fly over on the Monday. And if she's happy for me, she said, okay, she'll ring you tonight. So she rang me. I said, I'll fly over on the Monday, fly back on Tuesday. No dramas, all right, done. So I had a two-day interview with Maggie cooking at her house. Um, and I was, you know, I was like, holy moly, you know, what, what's going on here? So she was very welcoming as, as Maggie is. We, we spoke for hours and hours around the kitchen table. Um, and then basically she rang me the following week and said, yeah, you, you've got the role um, out of about 900 applicants. So it was, it was like, um, you know, needle in a haystack type thing. That, um, that's amazing. And if your email had got through, it might never have happened. That, that's right. So I was like, <laughs> oh, you know, so, yeah, so we moved over two weeks later, packed up the family once again and moved over. Um, yeah, and as I said, you know, I didn't even know what the role was or meant. Um, still trying to get my head around it. You know, I hadn't done any product development or anything like that. So I had all this science. I had no science background, so it's all, you know, science type based. Um, but Mar- Maggie's very, you know, tactile and, and it's all about flavour. So I type understand cooking. I had to get. I had to understand her cooking style and her thought process, um, and then try and develop that into a product. Um, yeah. So so I worked on. I was the only at that time. I was the only qualified chef in the in the company. We had a lot of great cooks, um, and I just worked. It was only me and Maggie basically at that point that worked on product development. Um, so it was just like, um, you know, hit the ground running. You know, we were working on soups and ice creams and relishes and pastes and biscuits and pate, you know, it was just everything was type of different. There wasn't type of one skew, um, that thing. So it was a great, it was a really, you know, um, a really good job, you know, when you, you pinch yourself when you get it and you're in there, you go, holy, you know, I get to make ice cream for a living and, you know, and then that year I started, she got this Senior Australian of the Year too. So her diary went nuts. Next Minute Media was on. So because I was the only one there, there was next, there was all the media that we had to do. Um, you know, there was you know, MasterChef and there was Delicious magazine and it just went on and on and on and on, you know. So, and I had no idea about that industry as well, how all that worked, you know. So, we'd be filming something in the morning, then we'd be doing a development in the afternoon of some type of product and then, you know, flying off to do a live show somewhere else or, or writing a cookbook or doing a TV show, um, you know. So, it was it was um, a really diverse type of role in the end. Yeah, well, I mean, you're a total advertisement for hospitality in that regard and, you know, that diversity of roles within the industry. So, yeah, I guess... The, so that's yeah. what I mean, but, you know, these, you know, speaking to these kids, is, that opened my eyes to what other, what, you know, chefs there, what other chefs' roles there are within this industry, you know, and you don't really think about them when, when did MasterChef didn't realize I had a team of, you know, four or five chefs that just trial and test, trial and test behind the scenes, you know, a whole team there. And then, you you know, you go and do magazine shoots and there's there's test chefs there. And, you know, so there's there's other scopes, you know, they've got to have the skill sets. Obviously, there's certain skills you've got to have going into those roles. Very much time management is one of them because, you know, you know, producers and, and film and that doesn't stop for, you just got to make it work um, and, and, you know, think on your feet. So, yeah, so there's, there's very much, you know, a lot of, you know, in product development, there's there's a lot of chefs out there and that can lead to product development as well, which is an exciting, exciting space. <coughs> Sorry. Um, you know, if, if you're science minded as well. 
Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you're also pointing to another benefit of working in the hospitality industry, which is all those transferable skills that you build up along the way, whether it's time management or people management, or now, you know, you're working with government. So I think um, people in hospitality don't often, or they don't always realise that their skills are in high demand in other industries. That's right. That's right. So I think you pick up all these along the way, even if you're, you know, even if you're only, you know, a, a casual in the industry, I think you do pick up you know, you know how to how to use a computer system for for sales, or how to you know greet meet and greet people, or or just time management in in general. Because you know you've got to flip tables, you know how that works. You got you know there's a lot of strategizing behind it that I think kids pick up, um, which is useful for them in their in their life. And. Mm. So, you know, you're working with government now and I know it's state government and there's a lot of discussion at all levels around jobs and skills, but what kinds of things would you like to see change for the industry in terms of government policies or initiatives that could be rolled out? Oh, good question. <laughs> um, not quite sure, really. Um, you know, obviously we need a, a skill set. Um, you know, how do we... How do we give them the skill set on, you know, for me, we've got a number of, of apprentices and a number of front of house trainees um, that are doing like Cert 4s in, it, in our group as well. Um, and I think what, you know, from our, our experience, what's made it so difficult is, is all the paperwork, red tape and emails that come with it. And because we're so short on on time, it just makes that make that makes it a lot harder. If it, if, they, if we could streamline that process, and then get people into work um, a lot quicker, I think it'd be a lot better. Yeah. What about from an immigration point of view or of visas? Like, do, would you like to see any changes in the way that's all structured? Um, yeah, I'm not really across all the details of that um, on how all that works. I haven't had too much to do with it. We haven't had any, or well, I've been in this role, we haven't um, had any visa people work for us. Not to say that we wouldn't, we just haven't, um, we just haven't had them work for us, that's all. So I'm not quite sure on, on how that all how that all structured really. Yeah, no worries. Um, all right, well, it just sounds like you're at such an interesting space, like with a lot of innovation going on in, in the businesses as they stand, but, yeah, so many, um, so much still to happen and, and, and come online. What are you feeling really excited about, Chris? Well, I'm feeling excited about that the SA government has, you know, done this research and found that they, their skill set is, is the lowest in the country. Um, and they're actually taking action to do about it. Um, so it'd be interesting. It'd be really, it's really exciting to have this, you know, these um, this board on the, the uh, hospitality reference group on on board to give advice to the government. And they know that you know teachers haven't got the skill set or the thought process, and they're doing the best they can um, and do a great job. Um, but at least we can bring a little bit of how to get into the industry and the reality of the industry. So I think you know these these um, technical colleges are setting up, how they're going to pan out um, and help, you know, people get the proper resources. Um, and then, you know, for all of us to have the the um, input into it, that we've been asked to have the input into it, um, to give them those that guidance and skill sets to help them actually achieve. So when, you know, when they come out um, of these technical colleges or TAFE or whatever it may be that they're going to work through, uh, that they're coming out better prepared for the for the industry, you know. I, I haven't been, you know, haven't really been back at TAFE, you know, for a long time, um, you know. But I, you know, if I think back to where we were, it was very, 
there are some certain technical things that you need to to do, which are good skill sets, but there's such diversity these days. Um, you know, I think it needs a, a little touch of reality as well. Mm, definitely. Well, it's a real validation of the industry and it's important to the economy and society to have this, you know, government backup, isn't it? Oh, I think so. I think it's very important, you know, and, and they've recognised it and, um, and they want to try and make improvements. So I think there'll be, you know, certain, um, you know, certain other studies done along the way to show that we can, you know, actually accomplish or get the numbers a lot better so we are looking at next year um forming a bit of a like a career expo if if you want to call it um we had a discussion about it the other day to try and bring teachers and students and parents along um but have a lot of you know just not a card table with a pull-up banner type thing um but have some you know um have some type of discussions um you know some key people in the industry um, but also supply chains, <coughs> sorry, suppliers, um, you know, chefs there to talk to, whether it's a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, a bit like a, you know, Simon Bryant who's on the board called a bit of a speed dating, you know, scenario where kids can sit down and ask you some quick rapid-fired questions and then move on um, because, you know, we all come from different backgrounds as well, you know. It's just not, um, you know, cafes and restaurants and hotels. There's, you know, there's aged care, there's conference centres, there's mining, there's, there's all this other different stuff, you know. So where do they actually want to see themselves and what do they find it more interesting and, and have these parents and teachers and the students to come along and ask those questions. So and try to make it, you know, a bit more um, interactive as well. Yeah, I love that. I'm sure it would be actually life changing for a lot of those kids. You just never know what's going to light the spark for someone. And That's, yeah, I'm sure it would happen in that room. Yeah, and ha you know, have a few, you know, bit of bit of cooking demos, or you know, don't make them too long and, and boring. You got to make it quite exciting to to keep their attention span, you know. So, and it might be a student that cooks alongside a chef, and you know, that develop a dish in fifteen, twenty minutes, or what it may be, you know. So, and I know that um, Emma McCaskill, who works for the government, who's formatted this hospitality group, they've they've set up a bit of a student competition as well. So a little bit of a cook off <coughs> um, cook off competition. So I think there's about five or six judges and then um, they actually win a prize. I'm not quite sure. I think it's a trip somewhere I saw the other day. So they're just starting to format that. So to, to get in kids, you know, start interested in cooking and then they can learn along the way while they're at school. So by the time they get to year 12, you know, they can do a vet course if, they're gonna, if they want to leave a bit earlier and do their, their training during 11 and 12. But at least they come out with some type of qualification. Um, so I think it's just all these type of ideas to try and throw them on the table to get kids thinking about this industry and, and knowing that they can go be, you know, a maitre d' in a fine dining restaurant and earn some really good money, you know, and um, or in a, in a top hotel or, or whatever it may be, you know, because I know a lot of young kids probably think, oh, I'll just go work at a local, you know, hotel or I'll go work at the local cafe. It's really only pocket money, um, which is great. We still need those, those kids, but get them to think of it as an industry as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Chris, I just want to let everyone know that there's a really beautiful chat with Maggie Beer on my brother podcast, Deep in the Weeds. Um, so if, it's so nice. So if anyone wants a bit more Maggie in their life and they haven't heard that chat, just search it up. Um, uh, chatting with Anthony Huckstep, it's just a really warm and yeah, beautiful chat. Yeah, I listened chat. to that um, about a month or two ago. It was really good. Yeah, it's a beauty. Um, but yeah, so great to get your perspective today and, and um, all the best with everything that you're working on. It's really exciting. It's so great for the industry and for the energy that it will bring. Um, I really appreciate your time today, Chris. No worries at all. Thank you very much, Jenny. Thank you.
This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.